trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I cannot believe that uh, we are just sailing through the month of January so quickly. I know I say this every month. Oh my goodness, another calendar page turning, but seriously, we just started the new year and we are two-thirds of the way through the month. I know I I say it like it's a bad thing. I'm just, (laughs) I'm kind of glad time is speeding up because frankly, things are getting pretty crazy out there in the world. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, 90,000 NATO troops are being mobilized for the biggest training exercise, I should put, put that in air quotes, training exercise since the Cold War. I know it's uh, it's it's a little bit creepy and uh, probably portends that there is is greater conflict on the way. But that's not where we're going to be focusing today. We're going to talk about things that uh, apply to you and me, right where we stand, and things over which we have control. But more importantly, I want to talk to those who who feel or who hear that call from somewhere in the universe to step up and be a source of truth and light. Doesn't matter if it's a if it's a large, you know, role that you're supposed to play or if it's a small one. The bottom line is I'm I'm suggesting if you hear that call or if you have that sense that I need to be doing more, that's very real. You're not imagining it. It's not some delusion of grandeur and you know, this is about uh, going out there becoming the star of your own movie. It's about hearing that call, answering it and becoming Whatever you were born to become. This is on my mind a lot lately because I think about Lavoie Finnicum. We are coming up on eight years since he was killed in Oregon. And I have thought often about that man and about the just undeniable goodness and great spirit that you could feel around him. Very solid, very courageous guy, full of love, full of conviction about how important freedom was. And I'm not going to get into the details of, you know, how how uh, frightened men were were conspired with and and fed lies, you know, to create a situation in which they had the opportunity and and created what they would assume was the necessity to kill him. I just think about my friend and and I think about uh, what it takes to develop that kind of conviction to where you realize not only were you born for this time, but there's an essential role that every single one of us has to play. So with that in mind, welcome to the program. By the way, thanks to my sponsors, including Ironsight Brewing Company, ironsightbc.com. If you are a coffee drinker, if you're a coffee aficionado, you got to click on that link. I provided it in my show notes under sponsors. You can actually go to the brianhideshow.com, click on any of the sponsors links, and it will take you to all of my sponsors. But check out Ironsight Brewing Company, ironsightbc.com. My friend John Harvey will thank you for it, and I think he's got a pretty cool thing going there. So I got a question for you, and this is this is kind of philosophical, but it needs to be asked. Why does the law not warn? I saw this article today from uh, from Paul Craig Roberts asking the question, or actually pointing out, it was observing, that our, our systems of law have basically been weaponized in order to uh, serve power instead of justice. 
Do you see this in the January 6th, uh, you know, uh, persecutions, sorry, prosecutions, same thing. Uh, nonetheless, it makes you wonder, why do, why do we have law in the first place? If those systems were created to serve the cause of justice, that's what Frederick Bastiat suggested in his essay, The Law. Why does the law not warn? I think you like what Paul has to say here. He says, everyone who has children, even nieces and nephews, understands that you have to warn a child before punishing him or her. If not, you teach the child a rash of bad lessons, like punishment can rain down upon you at any time with no warning. The world can't be predicted. There are two kinds of people, those who order and punish and those who obey or suffer. The line between what is punished and what is not is unknown. And trying new things brings you shame and pain. I'd say that's a pretty accurate assessment of of what happens if you don't warn a child before you punish them. Now, he says, I doubt that any of my readers would consider these as healthy attitudes for a child to assume. That's why we warn before we punish. We want them to understand that there are rational reasons for punishment, and we don't want them cowering in perpetual fear. So warning them, then, is a an essential tool, yet it plays almost no role in modern law. And this begs the question, why not? So this brings us to what is the purpose of law? Now, Paul says the purpose of law is to facilitate beneficial interaction and to minimize conflict. This concept, however worded, is what the founders of civilizations nearly always come back to. So if warnings help beneficial interaction, why should they be pushed out of law? And he gives some examples that that would illustrate this. Is it more beneficial to warn the truck driver that he's violating some regulation or to enforce the law impounding his truck for a week in the process? What are the economies of these two scenarios? Which facilitates benefit? Is it better to warn the kid with five vape kits and a small bag of hashish or whatever forbidden substance? Or is it better to send him to jail and perhaps condemn him to a decade in prison? Is derailing his promising life a factor to be considered at all? Or must we shut down our minds in the face of it's the law? He asks, would it be better to warn a small business that they're late on a tax deposit, or should they be ruined instead? Which makes life better for more people? Now, Paul says it's obvious in all of these cases, and we could add many more, that warning is far better at accomplishing what law is supposed to accomplish than simply slamming people with automated punishments. So why then does the law not warn? And here he explains what's happened. He says, the use of warnings has historically been common and often mandatory. Even the Romans, no bleeding hearts, nearly always warned before they struck. As historian Paul Johnson wrote, Roman law tended to sleep unless infractions were brought to its attention by the external signs of disorder. Then it warned, and if its warnings were unheeded, acted with ferocity. Paul says, even into my lifetime, beat cops used to warn people who were passing into criminality. And he says, hopefully, at least a few still do. But what's happened is that the law has been subverted through a long, slow process. Any given part of the process could have been seen as fixing a problem. The net result, however, has been the degrading of law. Justice over more or less the whole of Western civilization was held above the ruler. But once rulers could create endless streams of new laws and impose outcomes upon judges and juries, law was submerged below rulership. Previously, as under common law, judges sought justice and the legislated edicts of politicians were all but absent. So here are two specific changes that ejected warning from the practice of law. One is the loss of nullification. 
Nullification by juries was the final check on excesses of the legal system. During the American Revolution, for example, several famous cases of nullification, juries flatly defying judges, were crucial to the survival of dissent. And because of that, it was clearly acknowledged by the new U.S. justice system. Over the years, however, it's been beaten back to nearly complete exclusion, and when modern judges worry that nullification might rear its head, they apply threats. As a result, juries feel powerless compared to a judge, whereas the opposite is generally the healthier situation. Secondly, belief in the adversarial process as a guarantor of justice. Making sure that everyone gets to tell their story is central to justice. A belief that that might makes right is something far different. And in far too many cases, and in nearly all, always in prominent cases, the process of obtaining justice has become a battle between intellectual gladiators with government prosecutors, not coincidentally the best funded, winning a shocking percentage of the time. This is not a process that's open to the use of warnings. So these two examples are just part of a larger process, that of politics overtaking everything else in our civilization, including ethics. And when the ethical becomes the political, power overcomes justice. What a beautiful way to sum that up. Power, he says, as has been noted before, seeks nothing so much as more power. Under that mindset, whatever limits or insults power is an enemy. It becomes the crime of laissez majeste, of injuring the honor of the ruler. It is important to understand that this is not a physical thing like damaging persons or property. It's rather an emotional thing. With rulership unrestrained by a superior and separate ethics, laissez majeste becomes anything that portrays power as something to be limited. And warnings do not feed power, rather they starve it. So what's good for power are fear and blind obedience, and warnings minimize both. If the law warned rather than striking first, there would be far less fear among the ruled, and power would have to justify itself rationally. Does that not make a ton of sense? He says, in the end, more could be added to this subject, but I think we've covered the essentials. The situation boils down to this. Warnings clearly help accomplish the true goal of law, which is beneficial interaction, but they oppose the demands of power to be blindly obeyed. Therefore, warnings have been pushed out of the practice of law. Further, he says we can expect this situation to remain as long as politics reigns as sovereign over law and a jealous lord over society. I sure love how this guy thinks. I've got a link to Paul Rosenberg's column in my show notes for January 19th, 2024. Check him out at thebrianheidshow.com. Hit the subscribe button while you think of it. I'll send you a copy of those show notes each and every day that I do the show. All right, we'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I do want to mention that uh, for our article of the day, I will be joined by Juan P. Villasmil. This is a young man who I met uh, through uh, through a side project that I work on each week called uh, Young Voices. There's a, there's a podcast I produce called Moving Forward with Young Voices, and I get to interview four amazing young contributors, commentators, and writers who uh, are... This is actually on a global level. I know I don't want to sound too cosmopolitan here, but I uh, I regularly will sit down and interview people who are sitting in uh, Egypt or Great Britain or uh, Nigeria and and just all over the world. Canada, right? 
We're going to go foreign. We're going to go all the way. And, of course, across the U.S. as well. Uh, Juan has a tremendous take on the American dream. And particularly, has it changed? And in fact, does, does Generation Z actually even believe that there is such a thing as the American dream anymore? Again, he'll join me in the second half of the show. Two articles I want to touch on, though, in this segment. And this first one is just a wonderful way to learn basic economics. This is from Jacob Hornberger at the Future of Freedom Foundation. And he, he talks about the thank you system. When a person is leaving a restaurant or any other retail establishment, who should be saying thank you? The seller or the buyer? Jacob says the answer is both. That's because they are both benefiting from the transaction from their own individual subjective perspectives. That is, they're each giving up something they value less for something they value more. Thus, at the moment of trade, they've both improved their state of being from their own individual subjective perspective. Now, he says when one buys a burger, he's placing a higher value on the burger than on the money he's paying for the burger. It's the other way around for the owner of the burger establishment. He places a higher value on the money than he does on the burger. Therefore, both the seller and the buyer say thank you because they are both benefiting from the trade. And that's the way that every economic exchange works. Jacob says people give up things they value less for things they value more. Thus, people's standard of living can increase through the simple act of trade. Therefore, it stands to reason that the more opportunities that people have to trade with others, the greater the ability to increase their standard of living. That principle applies, of course, to everyone all over the world. The more choices, the better the chance of finding satisfactory trade opportunities. Thus, to the extent that government interferes with people's ability to trade with others, to that extent the government is inhibiting people's ability to increase their standard of living. That's a big reason why such things as trade wars, protectionism, tariffs, sanctions, embargoes, and other trade restrictions are bad. They reduce people's ability to increase their standard of living through trade. But he says the biggest reason, however, why governmental trade restrictions are illegitimate is the freedom reason. People have the fundamental, natural, God-given right to trade with whomever they want. After all, it's their private property. No government can legitimately infringe on people's fundamental, natural, God-given rights. So whenever you're buying something from retail establishments or wholesale ones too, feel free to thank them because they have enabled you to better your economic condition. And he says, and the same, of course, applies to them. What a beautiful, simple lesson on economics. And also basic manners. (laughs) Just to, to say thank you. Now, speaking of improving your standard of living, All the climate change alarmism seems calculated to take away from your standard of living. In fact, the article I want to share with you is an interview that Doug Casey did with International Man. This is on lewrockwell.com. You'll also find a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. How the climate hysteria is lowering your standard of living. Now, the question starts with an observation that this carbon hysteria extends far beyond oil and gas companies. One overlooked area is household appliances. International Man asks Doug Casey, saying uh, politicians are implementing increasingly stringent regulations for dishwashers, washing machines, and other appliances. There have even been reports of a desire to phase out gas stoves. What's your take on all this? And Doug says, well, as Der Schwabenklaus of the World Economic Forum boldly said some years ago, You'll own nothing and be happy. Now, he says the fact that a prominent figure could actually say that, promote the idea, and not be pilloried, gives you an idea of the spirit of the current century. 
the lack of outrage from the average man is even more sick than the idea itself. Not owning appliances is a practical application of the meme, but just one tentacle of the global warming octopus. Appliances are constructed from resources that have to be mined and run with electricity. That makes them evil. It's a much more it's much more important in these people's views to save the planet, a ridiculous concept, than to continue raising the standard of living. Doug says the fact is that self-righteous authoritarians who want to limit the use of appliances basically just hate people, especially middle-class people. They'd really like to revert to pre-capitalist times when only the upper classes, the feudal aristocrats, could benefit from conveniences. Eco-warriors, the Greens, are cut from the same cloth as socialists, communists, and fascists. Their totem fruit is the watermelon, green on the outside and red on the inside. That may seem a little bit harsh, but he's not wrong in how he's, he's, out, he's laying this out. And the article goes on to talk about, uh, you know, they ask him, so uh, what's really going on when it comes to uh, modern appliances? They're not the same quality as the ones produced decades ago. They tend to require much more time to do the things an older model could do faster. For instance, it's common to see standard dishwashing cycles take more than two hours today. Modern appliances don't perform as well. They break down more frequently. Climate regulations are largely to blame for this regression. What's really going on? And Doug says, look, I don't have personal experience or a lot of personal experience with how appliances work, but I've certainly heard that modern appliances are designed to sacrifice convenience and time in order to possibly use less water or electricity. But he says, one thing I do recall is several decades ago, the U.S. government decided to regulate the amount of water that could be used to flush toilets. So the devices are now less sanitary and often have to be flushed twice. The idea that politicians should mandate plumbing designs is absurd, but they do this with all products, cars, planes, houses, you name it. They destroy capital and slow technological process, even while annoying and frustrating engineers. Next, he's asked about government's uh, so-called green solutions as a step forward to the future. With International Man observing that in many ways they represent a big step back. And Doug is asked, what's your take? Doug says, well, uh, one currently fashionable indication of this is the 15-minute city, which governments are trying to impose all over the world. They would penalize you if you exit your designated 15-minute zone more than X number of times per month. Now, that's a green idea. Like most green notions, it's very retrogressive. They want to return people to the status of medieval serfs when few ventured more than 15 minutes from their hovels. The most egregious green solutions, he says, of course, involve spending trillions of dollars to build wind and solar facilities to generate electricity. Now, there's nothing wrong with using wind or solar power, but they only make sense for specific projects, usually in isolated locations under special conditions. Wind and solar are totally unsuitable for running an industrialized civilization. Now, they've gotten better over the years as technology has advanced, but they're still more the product of social engineering than mechanical or electrical engineering. His point here is, look, and he talks about EVs as well. He says, almost all green solutions are uneconomic, counterproductive, and even destructive. I don't know if you saw any of the... uh, Articles coming out of, for instance, the Chicago area, where a lot of people with electric cars had to go get them charged up because, you know, that battery drains in the cold weather. And uh, for a lot of people, those lines were very long. And so they just basically had a bunch of frozen robots sitting out there waiting to be charged, but totally immobile. They didn't even have enough charge to get them to the charger. 
I know, I know, Teslas are cool. Other EVs, yeah, they got all the bells and whistles, but have you weighed what you're actually giving up by committing to that green vehicle, which, by the way, is running on electricity produced by, say it with me, fossil fuels. You'll see train loads of those fossil fuels going to the power generation plants, you know, in many parts of the country. Anyway, it's a great article from Doug Casey. Well worth your time. I'm, I've just always been of the, the notion, or at least for some time, I've, I've wondered about, you know, why is it that the proffered solutions always seem to come down to giving more money and more power to the ruling class when it comes to saving the planet or addressing climate change? It seems to me somebody just wants more money and more power. As if they control the climate or they could control the climate through political words. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am very happy to welcome a special guest. I should probably confess, I have a... uh, I have another job that I, uh, I am lucky enough to hold down during the week, and that is I, uh, I help to host a program called Moving Forward with Young Voices. Now, Young Voices is an agency out of Washington, D.C. that is uh, helping prepare and develop talent in commentators, writers, and, and commenters um, all, across, all around the world, actually. And I have Juan P. Villasmil joining me. JP, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Brian? Fantastic. Look, we've got a great subject we're going to dive into. We're going to talk about the American dream. But before we do, tell me just a little bit about uh, about what you do with Young Voices in addition to, to other things that you do. How did you get how did you get connected up with this outfit in the first place? Well, that's a long story, but it all started when I was in high school. <laughs> uh, by my by the end of senior year. I met this older friend who liked me for some reason. And he told me, Hey, you like to write. I had a little blog with no viewers and he helped me pitch my first article ever for the American spectator. And of course it got rejected, but then I kept trying and I was like, Hey, this is kind of fun. So eventually I started writing by myself. So I, I was going completely solo for four years and I had some relative success, but then I learned about young voices and they can help me a lot with all that. So I took advantage of the opportunity. And now I have a team that edits my articles that gives you suggestions that teaches me how to pitch properly. And sometimes they get me on TV or they get me connected to people like you. So I can express my ideas and by doing so, becoming better at doing exactly that. So really fun stuff. I appreciate the explanation and I appreciate the opportunity I have each week to, to sit down. I get to interview four different young voices contributors and it, it breaks me out of the echo chamber, kind of gets me into, into other people's mind and, and uh, basically aware of a lot of things going on in the world that, that uh, maybe I wouldn't have been aware of otherwise. Now, a couple of weeks ago, you and I had a chance to talk about an article that you had written for USA Today about, I believe in the traditional American dream, but it won't be around for my kids to inherit. And I was like, that's so intriguing because I've worried about the very same thing, although I'm doing it from a little bit different generational uh, perspective. I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. Um, am I right in assuming you're, you're Gen Z? Yeah. Okay, so uh, sorry, millennials. You'll, you'll have to sit out <laughs> this conversation, but 
Talk to me a little bit about uh, why you wrote this article, and uh, and I guess you participated actually in a discussion that, that kind of prompted this. Yeah, so of course I've been thinking about this topic for a while. That's why I wrote about it. But what catalyzed my the development of this specific article was my participation in a study that was done by the Sign Institute at American University, which gathered young individuals and they asked us basically, what's the American dream? And they did this poll and then some focus groups and different questions, but all around the same subject. And what's the reimagined American dream? I did not like the concept of the reimagined American dream. I was kind of shrieking, guys, why do we need a new one? Like, let's let's return to the good old one. Uh, but after participating in it and reviewing the results, not just the conversations that were in, the, in themselves illuminating enough, I realized that the concept of the American dream I cherished, and I think the boomers cherished, is no longer one that my generation fully grasps. Let's so flesh, they talk let's flesh about, that out and uh, uh, talk about. So the American dream, when you say American dream, I kind of get something in mind and it sounds like you did as well. What's the traditional American dream that most people are going to think of when they hear those words? Okay, this is, this is fascinating. The American dream that comes to mind when I say the concept out loud is a Frank Sinatra, my way version of the dream. I did it my, you know, you know how it goes. Oh yeah. You, you're resilient, you're capable, and you live in a country that gives you the opportunity to exploit those and succeed. That's the American dream I grew up hearing about, maybe because I watched too many movies. But actually, the American dream, it's not even that originally. It all started as a national dream. The first time the concept of the American dream was mentioned was actually in 1931 in a book by James Trussell Adams, The Epic of America. He defined it as that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity to each and blah, 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 blah. Basically a dream for us all, a communal dream. By the 1970s, uh, economic growth, the atomization of the individual, what Christopher Lash and Tom Wolfe, famous writers of that decade called the me decade, we saw conceptions of that dream because, become much more individualistic and they would criticize kind of selfish. So people started talking about the American dream, not as a national dream of this is a dream of a nation, but the dream of a person. And it entailed buying a house, forming a family, and all that stuff. But that was a healthy, individualistic American dream. It was not in itself a repudiation of community, right? Nothing bad with that. But then it went even further. So after the me decade, you know, social media comes along, my generation comes along, and what we've seen, and it's reflected in this study, is the dream has gone from communal to a, an individualistic dream, and now, quite frankly, to a narcissistic dream. Why do I say this? Because in the polls, we don't even see buying property or, or forming a family as a key component of the dream for a vast portion of young Americans. What we see is simply being happy, 
building relationships, and making money. Those are the highest ranking elements of their reimagined American dream. Our reimagined, because I'm a part of this generation. And that's quite empty. The American dream has always been about something more. But at, at the end of it all, it makes sense. When patriotism is slow, when my generation makes finds it hard to see a future in this country due to current economic conditions and so on, I understand it, but at the same time, I repudiate it. I think we should reinvigorate that dream. And I think we should talk about it proudly. And a great part of that is education. It's the time that we spend on our screens. And not a lot of people are making the case for why the American dream, maybe it doesn't exist. <laughs> if he has Donald Trump, is dead. But why we should pursue it and why it's a good concept and why we shouldn't reimagine it and why we shouldn't adapt. And no, that's my, my political speech. You can vote for me <laughs> next year. I may, be, I may write you in after that. No, it's, <laughs> it's so interesting, though. I mean, growing up, you know, the, the thumbnail sketch of the American dream was, well, you, you know, you own a home, you have a good education, you build a great career, or basically you become whatever it is that you want to become. But, but at some level... It, uh, it meant you had skin in the game. And I'm not trying to equate that strictly with property ownership, but, uh, but private property rights was a big part of it. And, and now, I mean, look, uh, my wife and I moved here just a few years ago, and we moved at a time when, when home prices have never been higher. And so right now, we are renting and biding our time for those prices to come back down from the stratosphere. And, and frankly, she's despairing. We will never be part of the American dream again because homes are so unaffordable at, at the moment. Um, I got to ask your opinion on this. Do these things run in cycles? Is there, is there a cyclical nature to, to how the American dream plays out? Of course there is. So, you know, I... Sometimes I don't like the word social construct because it's exploited and it's, <laughs> it's made elastic. But to some degree, it's true. We're, we're a reflection of our times, a response to the conditions we grew up in. And for my generation specifically, and this is something that you see in other surveys, AI does some of those, American Compass and other, other organizations in D.C., reflect that it's not necessarily that my generation is just futile and we just hate the American dream. It's also that because of the conditions we've been exposed to, we don't see that traditional American dream as a possibility. So in a way, we're psyoping ourselves. So we say that we don't want kids, right? More than ever before. But also the reality is that even those who want kids, they say it's pretty hard to have them. And when you look at it in polling, what you see in the data is that there's a vast portion of people that say they don't, they don't want to have kids, not because they intrinsically don't want to, but because they don't see a way in which they can have kids in this economy. Whether that's correct or not, morality and so on, we can have that conversation later. But the reality is, is that conditions do influence politics, do influence culture. And in the last years, we, we've seen a lot of people converse about Hold, hold that thought. Culture. Hold that thought, JP. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. We are up against the break. Juan P. Mill is my guest. We will be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We had to go to break, but let's get right back with my guest, Juan P. Villas-Mill. He goes by JP, but uh, JP, you were you were in the midst of a great point when we hit up against the break there. Let's go back to this and, and talk just a little bit about, uh, you were mentioning, you know, people say, well, I don't want to have kids, but it's not so much that they don't really want kids as they just don't see a way for it to be feasible. And I'm sure that probably applies to some other areas of life uh, as well, or some other things that traditionally have been part of that uh, American dream. Yes, definitely. So, and sorry for the monologue. I just, again, I got really inspired when I talk about this. It's it's really deep, and I've done a lot of research uh, about it. But I, I think that's certainly true, and we cannot ignore it. The conditions of today's America are very different than the America that boomers grew up in. And that, that of course, changes the outlook of, number one, of the political sphere. So a lot of young conservatives don't seem excited by the same policies that the boomers did. Why? Because the times are different. Like, we don't have Ronald Reagan. We don't have infinite economic growth. We're not battling the communists. Our biggest enemy is not the Soviet Union anymore. We're facing an internal battle that's more profound and certainly more dangerous than any battle that we faced before. And it's the fragmenting of not only the American mind, but the the American land, the, the American people. We're becoming extremely isolated under the illusion that we're infinitely interconnected. And that this is something that I think I think this is something that we tend to overlook because of social media. So social media provides us with a venue for connection, but that connection is quite superficial. You don't invest as much time, as much conversation face-to-face, nothing better than that, right? And I think that also plays a role in how maybe not directly how we conceive of the American dream, but how we conceive of happiness and how we conceive of meaningful relationships. All of those have been hindered. And there's this, I would say, interdependent relationship between isolation and cultural narcissism, which is a it's a really fun idea that I, I've been trying to put out there. But if you're isolated, if you spend a lot of time inside your own head, then of course you're going to go crazy. So we we see this mental health epidemic. We see this suicide epidemic, which by the way, this is another fact. The suicide rate in 2022 was the, the highest suicide rate since the year that Pearl Harbor got bombed by the Japanese. Wow. The economy, the economy then was three times, the poverty rate specifically, we're three times worse than what they are today. We were in a great depression. Indeed, that was a great depression, not only metaphorically. So what exactly has changed in this country that's leading to so many people taking their own lives? Well, for one, it's not the economy. Like, sure, the, there's some situations in different parts of the country, the Midwest, that are contributing to this trend. But it would be... I would be lying to myself if I didn't say that this cannot be responded. This cannot be answered by econometrics, like with a with a little chart and and some graphs. No, it's it's a black hole 
and the heart of young Americans and then the heart of most Americans, honestly, that's been, it's become more evident. Let's, let's talk by. about some solutions. Um, one of the things that really jumped out at me was you talked about how um, we, we have lack of community. And, and I agree. I think that's, you know, right now people are very divided. They're very polarized. What are some of the things you could see that uh, could realistically help us develop a stronger sense of community? This, this is where it gets complicated because, of course, there, there are policy, policy prescriptions that seem a, a little bit abstract, maybe lofty, like, hey, let's build parks and let's encourage uh, uh, sports and school. There's a lot of things that we can talk about that would de facto lead to greater bonds. At the end of it all, though, it's not necessarily what the government can do, but what our leaders can say. So the, the U.S. Uh, Surgeon General, by the end of last year, I think it was November, he made a statement that made all the headlines. And the statement was that being isolated, being by yourself, has the same effect as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, right, to your health. It, it impacts the mortality rate in a, in a similar manner. When I saw that statement, I told myself, can you imagine if every leader was saying something similar? Can you imagine if instead of just spending money on prevention programs, on, on all these ills that we face, we actually had people talking about the drivers. We actually had leaders talking about, hey, like, you don't have to spend time outside just because it's nice. You have to do it because... It contributes to depression. It contributes to social cohesion, to the strength of our nation, to the strength of yourself, to the strength of your family. If you're a parent, right, right now, and you hear the U.S. Surgeon General say that, and imagine if you heard the president and the House Speaker and everyone else saying that and Hollywood stars saying that, you should be inclined, if not obligated, to say, what am I going to do so that my child it's not alone. What can I do? If your child is a 10-year-old and he doesn't have a lot of friends, man, it's time that you go out there and you, you take your child by the hand and you, you introduce him to some people. Maybe you go to church. You know, a lot of people don't, a lot of atheists might not like that, but that was the role of church back then. Aside from the spiritual, church gave you community and it was a community that was far stronger than what we see in college campuses today. A lot of the the community that we find today, it's a replacement of a strong community. We see community around immutable characteristics that are in themselves quite isolating. The thing with the church is that everyone could go to the church. Well, at least in you know the 1970s and so on. <laughs> Before, I don't know. But now, when you find community, it's, it's community regarding your identity or your political group and so on. No, we need like actual community. We need Americans people actually because this happens around the world too not tri just, not tribalism which is what yeah. a lot of the identity based stuff becomes we're down yeah. to just a couple minutes here jp but let me let me ask you about this one of the observations you made is that there is a there's a greater focus on um comfort as being you know central to the american dream as opposed to success and and i just i'd love to see is there a way we could define success 
in, in such a way that it's not just, well, I have the biggest mountain of money and I have this many expensive cars and my square footage of my house is this much. Um, what are some of the ways we might define success that would, would make that more of an integral part of the American dream? Yeah, so, of course, with, with the word success, what I, what I had in mind was how I've conceived of success in my, in my worldview. What my family has taught me is respect, respect the career, build a family, not necessarily own something, although that's the byproduct, but build something. And of course, one of the reasons why that conception lacks in my generation's minds is as we talked, for many of us, it's hard to idealize that and to see it. But there are ways in which, number one, we can help, we can guide people. And by we, I don't mean we actually, I mean our leaders, our policymakers. They can actually pass policy, put policy forward that makes it easier to build a family, that makes it easier to own a home. It's not easy, again, I'm, I'm not an expert on exactly what we can do, but we have to start talking about it as an issue of life or death, because it is. Because if, if we lose our spirit as a country, and I think we've already lost great part of our body. We are a very different people and we are finding it so hard to connect to each other. But at least we had that spirit in the Declaration of Independence, these principles. If we lose that, if we lose everything else, then we shouldn't be surprised when our nation collapsed. I mean, a little dramatic. I mean, I don't, th- I don't think you're wrong. Again. I don't think you're wrong, though. <laughs> I, unfortunately, we are up against the clock once again. We're talking with Juan P. Villas-Mill. I call him JP, but uh, JP, thanks so much for being on the show today and, and for sharing this message. I got to have you back again just because, look, your passion on this subject, I think, is well-directed, and and I want to tap into that <laughs> further down the line as well. Where can people find your work? Where's a good place to follow you? So you can follow me uh JP Villas-Mill, V-I-L-L-A-S-M-I-L on Instagram. And then on Twitter X, it's also JP, V-I-L-L-E-S-M-I-L, but with a real before that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.